Hello, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Jankowski, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Colin Walsh. Colin is the CEO of Borrow Money, which is on track to become the first mobile-centric national bank in U.S. history after recently gaining approval for a national bank charter. Prior to starting Borrow, Colin spent 25 years in consumer banking, holding senior positions at American Express and Lloyd's. We previously spoke with Colin two years ago in the early days of Borrow's launch, and are excited to welcome him back to the podcast to share his experience in the market since. Colin, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Peter. Great to be back. For those who may not know you well or have yet to listen to our previous podcast, could you start by sharing your background? Sure, happy to. Uh, at risk of uh, repeating what I said a couple of years ago when I was chatting with your audience, um, you know, my founder story is a, a little bit unconventional. It's not like your typical Silicon Valley uh, 22-year-old engineer that wants to go change the banking industry. I actually spent um, the, the better part of my career in the, in the more traditional banking world, so having worked at a number of big brands like American Express and, and Lloyd's Banking Group and Wells Fargo. Um, and I was inspired to launch Borrow because I felt the system was so broken for consumers and that there was a real opportunity to bring a new bank into the world that was going to actually do a lot of good for consumers using technologies in ways that could help them get ahead and really start to feel better about their relationship with their money. Thanks for that background. And so when we last spoke with you, which I think was about two years ago, you were in the beta stage of your launch. Can you talk a little bit about your journey since then and where you are today? Sure, yeah, happy to. So we've been a, it's, we've come a long way in the last two years. So uh, yeah, I think when I was last on this podcast, we were just getting going and and getting early product out into the market. Um, you know, we've had a series of of iterations and just continuing to listen closely to customers and understanding what are the problems customers were solving with our product and how we keep making it better. Uh, and that has resulted in. Uh, very rapid growth. So last year we grew some 600% in terms of the customer base. Already, just in the first quarter of this year, we're we're growing by kind of leaps and bounds from where we were at the last part of last year, uh, and just continued to um, add features that customers are asking for uh, to improve the experience. Uh, we've added the Android channel in addition to the iOS channel. We're building the web channel. So it's just uh, has been a constant state of listening and learning and uh, iterating on behalf of customers. And so I'm really very pleased and, and proud of the team that we've built and the, mo- the incredible momentum that we have. The other thing is we took a pretty bold step uh, very early on in our journey, and I, I think I may have chatted a little bit about this in the past in terms of uh, fulfilling our vision of becoming a national bank. And so we we applied for a national bank charter and were the first fintech to receive a preliminary approval from the OCC. And so in addition to uh, building a rapidly growing business and, and satisfying many customers, we're also in the process of satisfying the conditions of the OCC uh, to be able to open the first uh, mobile-centric national bank in the United States. So that's interesting because I think you guys are a little bit unique in being one of the only fintechs to apply for a national bank charter. Could you tell us about the rationale for doing so? Sure. Um, My belief right from the beginning 
as I mentioned, was to create a better bank and to create a bank that was going to actually make a difference in people's lives. And I think it was a little bit contrarian at the time because when I started the company in late 2015, kind of early 2016, it had been almost a decade since the regulators had issued a national bank charter. And so um, a lot of folks looked at me and thought I was uh, a little bit crazy to want to be starting a bank because the the regulators were really not um, showing signs that they were necessarily open for business. And um, it's a lot of investment because there's a lot of capital required to create a bank and build a bank, a lot of expertise required. Uh, but I felt at the time, and, and I still feel today, that uh, by being a bank, uh, it affords a number of really important advantages. Uh, first and foremost, to own the customer relationship and all the data associated with that relationship. Uh, you're able to offer a wide range of products, and, and the, the charter that's been approved for VARO allows us to offer pretty much a full suite of consumer banking products. And uh, you also can enjoy the uh, funding advantages of being able to fund the balance sheet with consumer deposits. And to me, the, the, the banking route, while it certainly um, entails uh, a, a level of investment and a, a level of expertise in terms of understanding how to safely and soundly build a bank and how to operate a bank, um, it uh, affords a number of benefits that I've just highlighted. And, and uh, certainly, I believe very strongly in it, and our investors believe in it, uh, and I think we'll be able to provide um, a tremendous service for our customers operating as a national bank. And that jives with the mission you had stated of creating a better bank. So going back to that broader vision, can you tell us about the value proposition behind VARO and what makes it different from other digital banks? And, and VARO was built on the foundation of a lot of consumer insight. And so we spent probably the first year uh, listening to customers and, and talking with customers and asking them you know, what could we build that would be different and, and what are the needs that they have and the pain points that they have that are not being satisfied by, by their existing providers. And so our early proposition is um, very much born out of a lot of that early consumer insight. And you know, it's, it's a mobile-centric bank. It's fee-free, so we don't have all the fees and charges that are typically associated with, with uh, in many of the incumbent banks. Uh, we offer tools to help people save, um, and we pay a, a very high interest rate to encourage and incent people to save. Uh, we uh, help people link their other accounts, so we've been really early adopters of open banking and aggregation. And we provide other basic tools to help people sort of manage their day-to-day -day financial lives. And, and I think the combination of, of all the various things that we've sort of tested and iterated on have really uh, resonated well with, with our customers and is really helping them solve uh, a number of kind of everyday financial problems. And so, uh, again, it's, it's about, and I think some of the things that you'll learn from the conversations with some of the other challenger banks, it, it is that real customer-centric approach and um, that deep listening, uh, what customers have to say, that, that is a big differentiator and allows us to move quickly with more modern technology and really focusing in on, on solving pain points and, and really building solutions for customer needs. That value proposition absolutely resonates with me from personal experience. I just closed a bank account after being hit with a few fees and realized that I was only earning a few basis points in interest. So um, 
So I, well, I yeah. hope you open up a borrow account. Take you less than you know, take you less than five minutes to uh, to have one set up. So that's strongly encouraging. Um, so one question that comes to mind is the customer centricity absolutely makes sense to me, but how do you think about balancing that with um, with the, the desire to maintain profitable unit economics? I think our model it lends itself to have a highly profitable business model. I mean, so we have had product in market just not even two years yet, and we're already seeing very rapid revenue growth. And um, we generate revenues from multiple sources. So um, there's the interchange income off the debit card spend. There's um, some partner income that comes through relationships that we have with. Uh, uh, several third-party partners that you know are participating in the borrow partner network. Uh, we have income coming from lending activities, and we continue to kind of test and learn and, and start to scaling up, scaling up some aspects of our lending business. Uh, so there's, it's a it's a very um, you know, interesting uh, business model overall because it is about uh, capturing customers on that core transaction account. Uh, there's lots of rich data to be able to personalize that relationship and to identify other needs those customers might have um, and continuing to engage them in a deeper relationship. And that it really is a traditional kind of retail banking relationship model that we're pursuing. Um, and it's a very popular model, particularly when you think about it on a digital platform where we don't have branches, we you know, don't have costs of an ATM network, we don't handle cash. Um, so there's a lot of, we don't have legacy technology, which is hugely expensive. I think our, our tech expenses are probably a 20th the cost of what it would be at a traditional retail bank. Um, so I think all of that um, adds up very nicely for us to be able to deliver a more disruptive value proposition to the market, which is appealing to consumers without the fees and charges and actually paying real interest on savings. And I've heard you mention a test and learn approach, both in describing the current personal loan pile that you have and to going back to some of the early days. Can you talk a bit more about how you go about using a test and learn approach, what sort of experiments you might do, and, and how internally you guys organize around doing that? It seems very core to your agenda. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're very data-driven. We're very growth-oriented. So we look at uh, testing lots of different things. And... You know, we put some features behind feature flags. We do A-B testing of different treatments. Uh, we do a lot of testing in digital marketing activities. Uh, so there's a whole series of things that we do to just make sure we're making the right decisions and making the right investments and continue to iterate in a way that you know, is uh, helpful for the consumer but also generating uh, positive outcomes for the business. On the revenue model, you mentioned interchange, lending activities, and you also mentioned some third-party partnerships. Can you talk a bit more about what those look like? Sure. Yeah, we have several already. Um, you know, companies like Lemonade, a company called Bill Shark, which helps negotiate bills. And so we're building out what we call the borrow partner network to be able to connect in companies that might be in product categories that we would not necessarily want to directly offer um, to our consumers. Um, so things like insurance and potentially student lending, uh, but there are other great providers out there that have good good products. They share similar ethos and values. They have um, compatible technology stacks so we can connect with them through our APIs. And uh, so there's a number of uh, partners that, that we um, are already working with and that we're in dialogue with 
to continue to build out that sort of partner ecosystem. Got it. Makes sense. So you mentioned earlier on in your desire to seek a national bank charter that you plan to offer a wider range of products. Can you share what you see as the end vision for VARO and working back from that, maybe provide a glimpse of what we can expect next? Yeah, I mean, I think VARO will just continue to grow as a, a bank first here in the U.S. And I, I anticipate that um, as we have the National Bank Charter, uh, we'll continue to grow in scale and substance and, and breadth of products. So today we offer checking and savings and unsecured lending. We'll have credit cards and, and robo and home equity and mortgages. And so there's going to be a full suite of consumer credit products. And as I mentioned, with, with uh, partnerships on the insurance side, um, so we would have a full uh, full kind of roster of consumer banking uh, needs that we can satisfy for our customers. Uh, and I could see us uh, going international at some point. Uh, there's a number of markets that, that we are interested in. I've spent a large part of my career managing businesses in international markets. And so that definitely is, is going to be on our longer-term roadmap. And I see borrow, you know, the end game as being a force for good in the banking world and being one of the one of the larger uh, digital banks in the world. And so I, it's just a massive market. There are millions of consumers who who uh, could use better banking services from uh, providers that are using technology in great ways to help them succeed. You mentioned the technology that you built as being one of your competitive advantages. How did you go about building your technology stack from scratch, and what what sort of timeline and uh, resources resource commitment did that require? Yeah, it, it's not a small undertaking to build a full full banking stack, and so there are a few decisions that you know, we took early on uh, about architecture around what would we build versus what would we buy, and there's certain areas of the stack that make sense to be using third parties. So, for instance, in, in when we open Borrow Bank, our core banking uh, platform will be Temenos, which is an international core banking uh, solution that will be part of our stack. But a lot of the activity in terms of the consumer facing and where our data sits uh, are very much kind of in our own IP and, and how we manage that relationship with the customer. Um, and how we integrate partners and other things are going to be very much in the VARO proprietary technology set. So I think it's both, you know, the architecture and how you think about a more modern um, modular architecture and how you think about the choices that you make and the pieces that you buy versus the pieces that you build. And I think we've made some good decisions around, um, you know, where we want to place those bets. And fortunately, we have some great investors who have a lot of vision around this as well that have helped us to uh, – to really build this in a way that is um, very sustainable, very scalable, very secure. Uh, we've put a lot of investment in um, fraud technologies and other technologies to help us um, really build a safe and secure business that can scale, not just uh, domestically, but globally as well. Wow, that's great. Um, so when we last spoke with you, it was just about two years ago, and you were in the uh, beta phase of your launch. Today, you've, you've grown quite a bit and had a lot of success in the market. I'm curious, as you've grown, what's been some of the more surprising things or unexpected challenges that you've had to work through? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of things that you learn as you go in terms of what customers really value uh, versus what might be nice to have. I think I actually listened to the podcast that um, you know, from, from a couple of years ago, and I think I was spending a lot of time talking about some of the more kind of PFM type solutions that we were building at the time. And while I think they have value, I don't think they're the um, major drivers of choice and engagement for consumers. And I think that there's been a lot of learning around that. I think we put a fair amount of early effort into trying to build some natural language processing capabilities and, you know, sort of chat bot. And, um, you know, that was something, you know, at the time that I started the company, there was a lot of hype around that. And I think we started to get into it and realized that actually to do this well is a really significant investment. And, you know, as we're trying to build a great, you know, core deposit product and a great savings account and lending capabilities and the real frictionless sort of banking. We had to sort of get focused around what are the things that matter most to these consumers. And again, using some of our investment that we've made in design research and design thinking allowed us to realize that actually some of the things we thought might be really cool and interesting um, were probably less as relevant to customers in terms of what they were looking for in a provider. Um, so that was all a, a, a fascinating sort of journey and exploration. You know, I think the other thing that we've learned is, um, you know, applying for and becoming a bank is really hard, and it takes a lot of time and resource. But you know, it's well worth it at the end of the day. But it was um, is a major lift for for myself and the team um, as we we're building a you know a rapidly growing successful business. And so I think that was also a really interesting kind of learning as I look back um, in the rearview mirror. I can only imagine. So mentioned building a team. How have you thought about recruiting for and hiring talent in the last few years, both as got the company off the ground and as you've scaled quite a bit? Um, what sort of things did you look for in terms of the folks that you were bringing on board at different stages of the company? Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly humbled by the caliber of talent that we've been able to attract. I think a lot of it is um, – the mission and the kind of real authentic focus on trying to improve consumers' financial health that, that binds together an incredibly diverse team of people that have amazing backgrounds in consumer technology and design and product, uh, in financial services, risk management, finance, treasury. I mean, so we have this team of exceptional people that have come to us from kind of all walks of life um, and are highly motivated by this customer-centric vision, um, this kind of innate desire to make it better, to sort of fix a broken system. Um, I think there's also one of the traits that we look for and, and we value very highly here at Borrow is curiosity. So people who are willing to kind of ask questions and, and think about things in different ways and try to come up with different ways of solving problems for customers. Um, all of those are, are incredibly important traits that you look for and are very much part of the culture that we've created. And as you've built the company, you've had a set of pretty blue-chip investors come on board. Uh, and your most recent Series B included Warburg, Fingus, and TPG's Rise Fund. Any advice uh, to some of the budding entrepreneurs listening in on how to go about raising money and what's made you successful in that regard? 
So when I first started the company, I had um, somebody email me and say, hey, you know, I want to start a bank and this is our Series A, or it was kind of really more like a seed wrap, but we raised $28 million and said, what advice do you have on it? Go spend two and a half decades running big financial services businesses and then people will back you. Uh, but I mean, it does, you know, that was kind of tongue in cheek. I was sort of joking, but at the same time, you know, having, um, credibility with the regulators, with investors, with customers, um, you know, having run these businesses, and understanding the dynamics, understanding the complexity of what it takes to uh, build a business in a highly regulated environment. Um, that's all really important. And I think that any investor, particularly, um, you know, to do something like this, which is a substantial capital investment, they want to believe in, in the team and they want to believe in the expertise and the capability of this team to deliver a successful business and ultimately a successful outcome for the investor. Um, so I'd say the advice is um, if you yourself don't have many years of experience, surround yourself by people who do um, and people who really understand both sides of not just the, the kind of the thing, but the tech and can bring a lot of credibility to the table in terms of how you're going to manufacture and build a financial services business in a highly regulated environment, but also how are you going to build technology products that consumers really love. And I think being able to marry the two of those is difficult, but if you can do that, I think you'll have a lot of credibility with investors. So we'd love to get your thoughts on the industry more broadly. And to start with, one trend that we've seen in the last few years is the rise of various digital banks, including, you know, challenges in the U.S., like yourself, um, the potential entry of challengers from the U.K. and Europe, like Revolut, N26, and even some of the national banks in the U.S., like J.P. Morgan, launching Fin. Do you see this becoming a crowded space? Is that a concern on your mind at all? Or do you think that there's enough, enough space for plenty of players to play in the market right now? I don't see it as a zero-sum game, but I do think that um, some will make it in scale and some will not. Um, I think there is such a thing as, as growing too fast in this type of environment, and I think you're already seeing some of the um, early challengers, you know, Revolut, and I know you've talked to, I don't know, was Nick or someone on his team, and, and um, you know, some of the guys at M26, are, you know, they're having some regulatory challenges because they scaled up so quickly that they probably did not put the appropriate investment and controls in place in critical areas around fraud and anti-money laundering. And you know, this is a highly, highly regulated business. And I think doing this the right way is super important because you can get big quick, but uh, you can also fall quick as well. And I think that's something that um, you know, anyone kind of coming into the space, you, know, you really want to build for the long term. and You want to make sure you're building a really solid foundation that you can scale off of. And so that's something that, you know, I think the jury's out, and I think we'll see how these next, um, you know, kind of these next sort of three, five, ten years play out. Uh, but I think the approach that we've taken is very much sort of trying to make it built to last and, and, and built to scale. Um, and so probably making some heavier investments early on than maybe some others did that were just simply t chasing growth. So I think there's there's some things that would be interesting to see how they play out over over the course of the next few years. Uh, I think within the incumbent world, um, there definitely is um, a growing awareness and I think heightened anxiety that some of these 
you know, are, are working in less nimble environments. They've got uh, technology that is slower to innovate um, and, you know, heavy cost structures that are hard to change, cultures that are very hard to change. Um, and I think that it's going to be a bit of a wake-up call for a number of players out there that have been slow to, to uh, embrace what's happening around them. And I think that banking has been uh, one of the few industries in the U.S. that in particular that has been uh, somewhat protected by regulation and hasn't been as prone to disruption. But I do see that changing um, and starting to change fairly rapidly. So um, I think this next uh, several years, uh, the, the landscape is going to continue to evolve and it's going to evolve quickly. It's definitely an exciting time. And you mentioned uh, fraud earlier as one of the concerns among different or, or one of the uh, challenges for different challenger banks. It reminded me that in our podcast with you two years ago, I remember you speaking about the explicit focus that you were putting on fraud and mitigating that as you're launching the market. Any sort of best practices that you've employed? Have you found this to be a challenge as you've launched and scaled in the market? We've hired very good people who really understand um, how to stay ahead of it and how to understand the threats and the evolving threat landscape. Um, you know, we have a new CISO who recently started, who actually was the CISO at the OCC. Um, our head of fraud strategy is someone who's known around the world, and, and she speaks um, regularly at, and at forums around um, fraud prevention. Um, you know, our head of fraud operations trained us out of PayPal and has tons of experience. And so, so I mean, our, our team is very strong in this area. And, uh, and we've also, I think, made some, some smart decisions around the technologies that we're using to stay ahead of it. Um, we partner uh, at, at the moment with Galileo, who's been a great partner. I think they've made a lot of smart investments on, on fraud. Um, I think we've spoken with uh, Clay Wilkes, their CEO. Um, so I just think it's something that you can't take lightly. And, you know, as we become a national bank, uh, we take on responsibility uh, for, you know, anti-money laundering, Bank Security Act activities, and all of that. You know, we're building that capability in-house. Um, to be able to do that effectively and not only satisfy uh, the regulatory requirements, but also um, continue to uh, safely grow our customer base. That makes absolute sense. So to end on a personal note, I see that you've been involved with a few nonprofit arts boards. Could you tell us more about your interest in that? Sure. It's been a passion of mine for, for a long time. And uh, most recently, I, when I was in the UK, I was very involved with the British Film Institute. And when I came back to uh, the United States to start involved in California, um, the CEO there had asked me to, to become part of their international board and sort of uh, start a bit of a, a, an operation here in the U.S. And so that's been a lot of fun, and it keeps me kind of connected to, to that scene and to London a little bit as well. Uh, but it's something that I certainly enjoy um, on a personal level and would love to do more of. But the life of an entrepreneur doesn't afford itself a lot of uh, a lot of downtime. So at some point, I could definitely see myself getting getting more involved in the in the, in the arts and humanities. Awesome. Well, thank you, Colin. Always a pleasure speaking with you. And best of luck with your continued growth. Thanks so much, Peter. I hope you and all your listeners uh, open up a borrow account. <laughs> I look forward to talking to you, hopefully in a couple of years, and letting you know how things have gone from here. Absolutely. We'll do. Excellent. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye now.